Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time we followed the career of King Magnus Barnlock of Sweden, the younger son of Jarl Birger Magnusson. He wasn't supposed to have been king, but he deposed his brother Valdemar and took over the job. Magnus is best known for his legal reforms, banning feuding and strengthening or even creating the Swedish aristocracy as a legally protected class. He was also good to the common people, protecting them against uninvited highborn guests who developed a habit of taking whatever they liked to eat and drink from the peasants and then not paying for it. Magnus Barnlock had three sons, Birger, Eric and Valdemar. They didn't get along particularly well. Not well at all, actually. Eric and Valdemar even toppled their brother Birger, but had to reinstate him after pressure from abroad. Birger was not a guy to let bygones be bygones, and seven years later he had his revenge when he arrested and killed his brothers when they came to celebrate Christmas with the king and his family. Even though Birger must have been happy about his revenge, it provoked a general uprising throughout the country that eventually led to his downfall. Birger had to go into exile in Denmark, and his son and heir was caught and executed. When the Swedes came together at Uppsala to elect a new king, they chose the three-year-old Magnus Eriksson, the son of one of the dukes King Birger had killed. This time, we'll follow his career as king of not one, but two countries. Episode 51, One King, Two Crowns. So, the year was 1319 and the Swedes had just elected a toddler king. That may seem like a lot of responsibility to put in a three-year-old, but for Magnus Eriksson, it was only the beginning. He'd been elected king of Sweden thanks to the fact that he was the only surviving male member of the Swedish royal family, except his uncle, ex-King Birger, who had been forced into exile, and his cousin, Magnus Birgerson, who would soon be executed in order to eliminate a threat to young Magnus Eriksson's reign. But King Magnus was a royal stock also on his mother's side. She, Ingeborg Håkansdottir, was the daughter of the King of Norway, Håkon V. And uh, it just so happened that Magnus's grandfather, King Håkon, died the same year Magnus was elected King of Sweden. Ingeborg was Håkon's only legitimate child, but since she was a woman, she was barred from becoming the monarch. That meant that her son, Magnus Eriksson, inherited the Norwegian crown as well. He was declared king of Norway at the Thing in Tønsberg, southwest of Oslo, in August, just a few weeks after he'd been elected king of Sweden. In other words, the three-year-old Magnus Eriksson was now the king of both Sweden and Norway, and Finland, since that was part of Sweden now and Iceland, and Greenland, which were both under Norwegian control. Young Magnus was the king of an enormous realm, the largest kingdom in Europe, in fact. Not too shabby. But it didn't end there. Remember, this was all happening at the same time when Denmark was spiraling out of control, and a succession of Danish kings pawned off bit after bit of the country to foreign noblemen. You may also remember that in the middle of that chaos, the king of Sweden acquired the region of Scania. That king was none other than Magnus Eriksson, who from then on would go by the title King of Sweden, Norway and Scania. I'm not sure what the Finns, Icelanders and Greenlanders thought about not being important enough to be included in the title, but there you have it. Not only was Magnus Eriksson the child king of the largest kingdom in Europe, 
He and his kingdom also enjoyed peace on all frontiers. The Crusades in Finland had finally ended, and the Swedes and the Russians from the Novgorod Republic signed a peace treaty at Nöteborg in 1323, where Sweden's eastern border was defined, at least partially. I believe I mentioned that the northern part of the border was a little fuzzy, but no one seemed to care too much about it in Nöteborg, since northeastern Scandinavia was largely uninhabited at the time, at least by Swedes and Russians, who were the ones signing the treaty. The treaty was supposed to have brought about eternal peace between Swedes and Russians, but that was not to be. Under the reign of Magnus Eriksson, the colonization of northern Sweden and Finland gained momentum, and Russians also settled in increasing numbers in eastern Karelia and in the White Sea region, laying the groundwork for future border disputes between Sweden and Russia. But for the time being, Magnus Eriksson could bask in the glory of his eternal peace with the Novgorod Republic. When the king was 18 years old, in 1334, he traveled to France and proposed to Blanca, the daughter of the Count of Namur, or Naiman, in the Low Countries. Actually, her name was Blanche, but no one in Scandinavia could pronounce that, so in her new homeland, she'd be known as Blanca. It was a bit of an eccentric choice to marry some random aristocratic woman from the continent, and not a princess, but it turned out well anyway. According to tradition, Blanca was both intelligent and beautiful. She brought with her an air of continental refinement and chivalry, and two of her brothers even came along and became knights at the court of King Magnus. They introduced jousting tournaments in Sweden, and it soon became all the rage among Swedish noblemen. But more important than all the style and grace Queen Blanca brought with her, she gave the king a son, which was the main job for any medieval queen consort. Actually, Magnus and Blanca had two sons, whom they named Eric and Håkon. The names weren't coincidental, or just something the young parents chose because they thought they sounded cool. These were names of kings. Eric was a common name of Swedish kings, there had been 11 Eriks on the throne of Sweden by this point, and Håkon was a typical name for a Norwegian king, there had been five kings called Håkon in Norway already. The point is that King Magnus didn't plan on his kingdom to remain unified permanently, and that did make some sense. He was king of an enormous landmass, and it was tricky, to say the least, for someone to control such a vast area. It would make much more sense to divide the countries again. Not that he himself was willing to part with either crown, mind you, but the next generation would divide his realm. Magnus wanted his firstborn, Eric, to eventually succeed him in Sweden, and Håkon would inherit the Norwegian crown. More or less at the same time as King Magnus married Blanca, his sister Euphemia married the Duke of Mecklenburg, and they also had a son whom they named Albert. And no, I'm not just passing on 600-year-old court gossip, all of this will become important later on in the episode. King Magnus's reign wasn't just characterized by peace and chivalry though. Already during the first years after he was elected King of Sweden, a commission was established to put together a new law code for the whole kingdom, just like they had done in Norway under Magnus's great-grandfather, King Magnus Lawmender, whom we talked about in episode 45. Obviously, this commission wasn't the initiative of the prepubescent king himself, but rather the Council of the Realm. The lack of a unified law code in Sweden had started to become an irksome issue for both the church and for various noblemen with landholdings and business interests in more than one region of the kingdom. They were the ones who wanted one law in the whole country, and as far as they were concerned, that law couldn't be introduced fast enough. 
The commission worked quickly, and already in the 1340s, a proposal was presented to be voted on. But seeing the finished proposal, the representatives of the church objected, since they felt the proposed law violated church privileges and canon law. And they actually managed to delay the implementation of a unified law code for several years. Not that the commission's proposal was particularly revolutionary, it was quite conservative, trying to stay true to traditional Swedish law, especially the laws from Uppland and Ostrogothia. This was in fact part of the reason the church was against the proposal. In the view of the bishops, the new law code leaned too much on old Scandinavian legal traditions instead of Roman law, which the church favored, and which was the dominating legal tradition in large parts of Europe. But in the end, the church had to relent, and Roman legal tradition wasn't introduced in Sweden. The new law code introduced during the reign of King Magnus Eriksson also contained a political section, something akin to a proto-constitution, if you like. It stipulated who could be elected king, how a king was to be elected, what power and authority the Council of the Realm should have, and several other such things that would regulate how Sweden should be governed. King Magnus had tried to exclude any mention of how new kings were to be elected, probably because he wanted to introduce hereditary monarchy in Sweden, just like in his other kingdom, Norway. But the aristocracy insisted on including laws regulating the succession through royal elections. They didn't like that the descendants of Jarl Birger Magnusson had started to treat the office of king as a birthright. But it wasn't like the election of kings was a completely open affair. The new law did state that candidates for the top job should preferably be sons of the previous king, even though the law didn't say that the oldest son had the strongest claim. Another legal milestone in King Magnus Eriksson's reign was the official abolishment of slavery in Sweden. In January 1335, when he was visiting the city of Skara in Westrogothia, the king issued a proclamation banning slavery in that region for anyone born of Christian parents. And since there weren't any adherents to the old religion around anymore, and no new religions had yet been allowed in Sweden, the whole population was born of Christian parents. Meaning that slavery was now effectively banned. The proclamation only mentioned Westrogothia, since this was the last region of Sweden that hadn't abolished slavery already. It's unclear how much of a practical effect the ban had, though. There probably weren't many slaves around anymore. It's also worth noting that the ban on slavery only applied within the borders of Sweden, and again, only to people born of Christian parents. So when Swedish merchants wanted to get in on the lucrative slave trade between Africa and America in the 17th and 18th centuries, there were no legal obstacles standing in their way. So far, it may seem to you that the reign of Magnus Eriksson was a golden age of peace, European refinement, and legal reforms. And it's true that it started off that way. But there was trouble ahead. It had started already back in 1331, when Magnus was 15 years old, and he was declared to be of age, meaning that he could start the personal rule of his kingdoms. This declaration wasn't received well in Norway, where the law clearly stipulated that a king would be considered a minor until he turned 20 years old. So the decision to end Magnus's minority five years earlier than what the law allowed provoked a rebellion among the Norwegian aristocracy, a rebellion led by a man called Erling Vidkunsson, who felt passionately that the law must be respected. 
I'm sure the fact that he was the one ruling Norway during the king's minority had nothing whatsoever to do with the decision to lead a rebellion against the premature abolishment of his own regency. Ultimately, though, the rebellion failed, and after two years, the Norwegian nobles yielded and accepted that Magnus Eriksson was now an adult who could run the kingdoms on his own. But they didn't like it. And the tension between the king and the Norwegian aristocracy didn't end there. The Norwegians felt disrespected, and in their minds, the king was too focused on Sweden, neglecting Norway. That impression was only strengthened on July 21st, 1336, when King Magnus was crowned king of Sweden and Norway at an elaborate coronation ceremony in Stockholm. This annoyed the Norwegian noblemen and gentry, since they didn't like that their kingdom was reduced to an afterthought at the coronation in Sweden. They had wanted a separate ceremony in Norway, and the fact that they didn't get it did nothing to improve the king's relations with his Norwegian subjects. Tension boiled over into open rebellion again in 1338, and this time it took five years for peace to return. And even worse for the king, this time he didn't win. On August 15th, 1343, King Magnus and the Norwegian nobility met at Varberg and signed a deal. The good news for the king was that the Norwegians agreed to recognize his son, Håkon, as the heir to the Norwegian crown. The bad news was that they demanded that Håkon be given that crown immediately, meaning that Magnus had to give up his Norwegian throne in favor of his son. To sweeten the deal somewhat, Magnus was allowed to assume the role of regent of Norway until Håkon would come of age, which happened in 1355. As if the increasing hostility with the nobility in Norway wasn't enough, Magnus Eriksson's relations with Denmark was also growing tenser in the 1340s. As we discussed in episode 48, A New Dawn, Danish King Valdemar Dawn was getting his house in order after the long years of decay. Magnus Eriksson was worried about these developments, not least since it didn't take a genius to figure out that Valdemar Dawn would one day want Scania back. But before the Danes had time to strike, the plague struck and postponed the showdown between Magnus and Valdemar for a decade or so. Even though the disease had saved Sweden from an immediate Danish attack, it didn't take long for King Magnus to realize that the plague was a threat on a hitherto unknown scale. He decided that the situation required resolute action. So at a meeting at Lödöse on the Swedish-Norwegian border in the fall of 1349, he made a proclamation about new measures to stop the spread of this deadly disease. And he demanded that every Friday would be dedicated to fasting and prayer to the Virgin Mary, since it was obvious to the king that the plague was God's punishment for the wickedness of man. The fasting and the praying had limited effect, and a large portion of the population both in Norway and in Sweden perished. We'll get into further details about the ravages of the plague in a future episode. In a move that seems particularly ill-timed in hindsight, King Magnus decided that the late 1340s would be a good time to start a war against the Russians. This wasn't actually the first time the eternal peace between Sweden and the Novgorod Republic had been violated by the Swedes, in 1337, religious tension between the Catholic Swedes and their Orthodox neighbors had led to Swedish forces crossing the border, pillaging and killing non-Catholics. The Swedes had even captured the fortress of Netebori on the shore of Lake Ladoga, but in 1339 the peace was restored, as was the old border. Officially, the campaign in the 1330s had been the initiative of a Swedish commander who'd gone rogue, 
but it seems unlikely. Not least in the light of the fact that in 1348, just before the plague struck, King Magnus himself led yet another invasion across the border with the aim to convert the Orthodox heretics to the Catholic version of Christianity. Under the leadership of the king, the Swedish forces advanced up the river Neva, converting the willing and killing the unwilling, until they reached Nettebori, which was captured yet again. Unfortunately for King Magnus, these successes were short-lived. Already in 1349, after a siege that lasted for seven months, the Russians took back Nettebori and the Swedes had to retreat. Their position was getting untenable, not least because of the plague that was still ravaging Sweden. So soon, King Magnus had to return home to his plague-stricken kingdom, not shrouded in glory, but with a hefty bill for an unsuccessful and, by all accounts, unnecessary war. The king had clearly proved incapable of defeating the plague and the Russians, but he was determined to at least take care of the cost of the war. Since the crown was low on cash, as usual, Magnus Eriksson decided that someone else should foot the bill. That someone else was the nobility and the church, who had grown fat and rich during his years on the throne, not least during his minority. The king decided to take back a number of estates and lands that the crown had given to various noblemen and ecclesiastical institutions back when the economy had been better. This measure may have solved some of the king's immediate monetary problems, but it did absolutely nothing to improve his relationship with the Swedish nobility. In fact, a rebellion broke out among the Swedish nobility, and the rebels enjoyed wide support in the upper echelons of Swedish society. Even the church backed them, since their principle about the need to be obedient to a Christian king apparently didn't apply if that Christian king wanted to tax church property. One of the members of the aristocracy who participated in the rebellion against King Magnus Eriksson was a woman called Bridget Birgersdottir. She came from a family of rich landowners and law speakers, and her maternal grandfather had been the brother of Jarl Birger Magnusson. She was even the godmother of the king's eldest son, Eric. We'll talk much more about Bridget next time, because she had quite an interesting life. After she became a widow, she started to have visions and received messages from God and the Virgin Mary. And when the rebellion against King Magnus broke out, several of these messages contained scathing criticism of the king. For instance, Bridget was told by her celestial sources that King Magnus Eriksson was a homosexual, and because of that, his enemies started to call him Magnus the Caresser. That must have been awkward for the king, but it was probably nothing compared to the awkwardness brought about by the fact that his son and heir, Eric, agreed to be the leader of the rebellion. Magnus eventually realized that the game was up. He was never going to stamp out this rebellion, and he had to reach an agreement with the rebels, led by his own son. So in 1357, they divided Sweden between them, with Eric receiving most of it. Magnus agreed, but it soon turned out that Eric wasn't happy. He wanted more, and since Magnus didn't want to give up every little bit of land he held, he turned to a somewhat surprising quarter for help, King Valdemar Dawn of Denmark. You may remember that we talked about this in episode 48. Magnus Eriksson asked Valdemar Dawn to chase his son Eric out of Scania. Valdemar agreed, but when he had taken control over the traditionally Danish region, he didn't hand it over back to the King of Sweden, but instead kept it for himself. Then all of a sudden, when all seemed lost for King Magnus, his rebellious son Eric, his wife and their two sons suddenly died in 1359. When Eric died, the rebellion he had led lost its momentum and Magnus could reclaim his kingdom. Minus Scania. 
But just because he'd won, that didn't mean that his enemies within the aristocracy and the church had forgiven and forgotten. King Magnus' enemies spread a rumour accusing Queen Blanca of having poisoned Eric and his family. For the record though, it's very unlikely that the Queen actually killed her own son, her daughter-in-law and her two grandsons. It's much more likely that they fell victim to some disease, such as the plague which was still popping up every now and then. So even though he was back in the saddle, Magnus' relations with the aristocracy hadn't improved. To make matters even worse, then Valdemar Don attacked Gotland in 1361, slaughtering its defenders and snatching the island from Sweden. Soon after King Magnus had regained Sweden, minus Scania and Gotland, it was high time for his one surviving son, King Haakon of Norway, to marry and have children to secure the succession. Even though this was primarily a question of Norwegian succession, it would have repercussions throughout Scandinavia. Remember the episode about Valdemar Don and how I told you that Valdemar's son and heir, Christopher, fell in battle, and that this would affect Sweden as well in the long run, and that we'd get back to it another time. This is that other time. Valdemar Don had two daughters, Ingeborg and Margaret. Ingeborg was the elder sister, and she was married to the Duke of Mecklenburg, the son of Magnus Eriksson's sister, Euphemia. I told you, we'd get back to that later in the show, right? Margaret, Valdemar's younger daughter, was the fiancée of Haakon of Norway, the son of Magnus Eriksson. Haakon was also the most likely heir to Magnus's Swedish crown, since his rebellious brother Eric was now dead. That meant that Margaret and Haakon's son, Olav, born three years after they got married, was the heir to both the Norwegian and the Swedish crowns. Since Valdemar Don didn't have any male heirs anymore, the Danish nobles wanted Olav, who was Valdemar's grandson, to inherit the Danish crown as well. But King Valdemar himself preferred to be succeeded by the son of Margaret's older sister, Ingeborg. She was married to Henry, Duke of Mecklenburg, also known by his charming and not at all ominous nickname, the Hangman of Mecklenburg. In 1375, Valdemar Don recognized Albert, the son of Ingeborg, as his heir, and thus lined him up to inherit the Danish crown after he died. Valdemar Don may have been a powerful king all his life, but when he did die in October that same year, the Danish nobles ignored his wishes and instead offered the crown of Denmark to Margaret's son, Olaf. They didn't want Albert because he was perceived more as a German than the grandson of Valdemar Don. So Olaf of Norway was elected king of Denmark, with his parents, the king and queen of Norway, functioning as co-regents during his minority. So now young Olaf was poised to one day inherit all three Scandinavian crowns. But following the attempts to undermine the economic power of the aristocracy, King Magnus, and therefore his family, wasn't exactly popular among the nobility in Sweden. So some representatives of the Swedish aristocracy, who had been forced to go into exile after the last rebellion, went to, wait for it, Mecklenburg and offered the Swedish crown to Magnus's nephew Albert. And no, this isn't the same Albert who lost the chance to become king of Denmark, but his uncle by the same name. This Albert was the son of Euphemia, King Magnus Eriksson's sister, and the brother-in-law of Ingeborg of Denmark, who was the daughter of Valdemar Don. If you find all this confusing and have a hard time keeping track of how the various Scandinavian royal families are related to the Dukes of Mecklenburg, don't feel bad. I had to draw a family tree to keep it all straight in my head as I was working on this episode. But don't worry about it. Ultimately, the exact familiar connections between them aren't all that important. What is important 
is that Albert accepted the offer, and backed by a Hanseatic fleet, he sailed across the Baltic Sea to take control over Sweden already in the fall of 1363. King Magnus Eriksson had not seen this coming. Albert's forces managed to take control over the city of Kalmar pretty easily, and that was bad news for King Magnus. Kalmar was an important port city, with a strong castle on the southeastern Swedish coast, and its importance had only grown after Sweden had lost Gotland. The Hanseatic fleet then continued north, and in 1364 Albert reached Stockholm, which was a half-German town thanks to Jarlbeer Magnusson's insistence on inviting German merchants to settle there. These Germans made sure to open the city gates to Albert and Mecklenburg, meaning that the king now had lost the two most important Swedish port cities on the Baltic Sea. From Stockholm, Albert continued to Uppsala, and on February 18, 1364, the great and the good of Sweden convened at Mura Stones to elect a new king. Technically speaking, Albert wasn't eligible because the new law of the realm stipulated that the king must be born in Sweden. But after a somewhat chaotic debate, it was instead Magnus Eriksson and his son Håkon of Norway who were declared unfit candidates for the Swedish throne, and Albert was elected. But just because he won the election, that didn't mean that all was smooth sailing from now on for Albert. Magnus Eriksson still had strong support in the country, not least in the western regions bordering Norway. And these supporters weren't willing to give up just because some illegal royal election had taken place in Uppsala. While Albert was busy getting himself elected, Magnus Eriksson and his son Håkon of Norway had had time to gather an army. They now advanced to oust the German usurper from Sweden. The two sides met in battle some 80 kilometers northwest of Stockholm, where the Swedish-Norwegian force was defeated. King Håkon of Norway was wounded, but at least he managed to escape from the battlefield to fight another day. Magnus Eriksson wasn't so lucky. He was taken captive by Albert's men and brought to Stockholm, where he was locked up in the keep at Stockholm Castle. At this point, King Valdemar Don of Denmark decided to weigh in on the matter. He sent troops across the border into Sweden in support of his son-in-law King Håkon of Norway, who was fighting to free Magnus Eriksson from his imprisonment. So ironically, now Valdemar was fighting on the side of King Magnus, who had been fighting against only a few years ago. Things shifted fast in the kaleidoscopic world of medieval Scandinavian high-stakes politics. The Danish army was joined by forces of Swedish peasants who wanted to fight for their king against the German usurper, who also had managed to make himself unpopular in record time by insisting on appointing Germans to all key positions of power in the country. Together, the Danish and Norwegian armies, aided by these discontented Swedes, took control over a pretty large part of Sweden, with the notable exceptions of Stockholm as well as other cities and castles under German command. In 1371, King Håkon managed to get as far as Stockholm itself, and he laid siege to the city. But even though he was soon beaten back by Albert's forces, the incidents had been enough to spook the Mecklenburgian. The two sides signed a peace agreement that recognized Albert as King of Sweden, but also stipulated that Magnus Eriksson would be set free, and that he would be allowed to travel to Norway. By the time he was released, Magnus Eriksson was a broken man. He'd been king for a very long time, not only compared to other medieval monarchs. He actually held the record for the longest reigning Swedish king for hundreds of years, and he's only recently been beaten by the current king, Karl XVI Gustav. But now Magnus Eriksson's days of claiming two crowns were behind him, and both Norway and Sweden, not to mention Scania, had been taken from him. 
Magnus spent the rest of his life in Norway under the care of his son Håkon. He eventually died in 1374, drowning when the boat he was travelling on sank off Haugesund on the west coast of Norway. Few people mourned his passing. Even though he'd been king for such a long time and had ruled such a vast realm, he was generally considered a failure. A weakling who couldn't stop foreign powers such as Denmark, the Hanseatic League and Mecklenburg from interfering in Swedish and Norwegian affairs. And he hadn't been able to control domestic opposition either, something that had ultimately caused his downfall in both his kingdoms. It didn't help that he was also seen as an inept politician who gave his favourites too much power and influence. And the fact that favourites in this case was code for male love interests didn't really do much to improve Magnus Eriksson's reputation among his contemporaries. Still, I don't think we should judge Magnus Eriksson too harshly for his inability to handle the Swedish aristocracy. By now, they'd grown rich and powerful and did what they could to exploit their influence in order to curb the power of any king, including Magnus's successor, Albert of Mecklenburg. The Swedish nobility even used Håkon's campaign to liberate his father from prison in Stockholm to undermine the position of the new King Albert. The members of the Council of the Realm blackmailed Albert, telling him that if he wanted them to remain loyal, he'd have to surrender all the castles in the country to them and let them appoint new members of the Council of the Realm without his interference. Faced with the invasion by the King of Norway, Albert had no choice but to accept, basically rendering himself powerless. The upper crust of the aristocracy was now in charge, and they did what they could to squeeze as much out of the situation as they could. Obviously, Albert wasn't happy with the situation, and he wasn't going to accept it in the long run. He tried to claw back some of the authority and influence that the Swedish kings traditionally had enjoyed, not least by introducing a reduction of the largest estates held by various Swedish noble families, estates that had been granted during the years of chaos and a weak crown. But Albert had miscalculated. This move cost him his vital support among the nobility, and even in the Council of the Realm itself. When they realized that the man they expected to be their puppet actually threatened their wealth, members of the council stabbed Albert in the back. Figuratively, not literally, but still. In 1389, they turned to none other than Margaret, the daughter of Valdemar Don, and the widow of King Håkon of Norway. Yeah, not only Magnus Eriksson, but also his son Håkon had died by this point. Margaret was acting as regent for her son, Olav, who was king of Norway and Denmark. And now, these Swedish nobles offered her Sweden on a platter if she'd just helped them to get rid of King Albert. Margaret didn't hesitate to take them up on their offer. Beyond the obvious political benefits of the deal, she also loathed King Albert on a personal level, because he liked to taunt her with misogynist propaganda, calling her ability to rule into question because she was a woman, dismissing her as the king without trousers. So she and her forces moved into Sweden, and in February 1389, the two armies met in a battle near Falköping in Västergötland. The battle was short and decisive. King Albert's forces were beaten, and he himself was apprehended by the Danes. According to a German chronicle, Margaret even had him stripped and dressed in a jester's cape as a punishment for his taunting of her. But the fact that Albert was now a prisoner didn't seem to faze his German allies. They continued to fight for his cause, and they were in a pretty good position since they still held Stockholm. They also used their fleet to block other Swedish ports on the Baltic Sea, such as Kalmar. This went on for several years. 
In Stockholm, there was tension between the Swedes and the Germans, and the Swedish members of the city council and a number of other prominent Swedish burghers were arrested and brought to a barn just north of the city. They were locked up inside, and then the barn was set on fire, killing the prisoners. But in the end, all this blockading and burning people in barns didn't pay off, because Margaret made a deal with the Hanseatic League in 1395, according to which Albert would be released, but he'd have to give up Stockholm within three years or pay her an enormous amount of money in compensation. In 1398, when the three years were up, Albert chose to give up Stockholm and instead return to Mecklenburg. Back in Germany, he remarried, eventually gave up his claims to the Swedish crown and ruled as Duke of Mecklenburg. Meanwhile, Margaret took control over Stockholm and Sweden, and now she, or officially her son Olav, ruled all the three Scandinavian kingdoms. In a future episode, we'll see what Margaret did with that unprecedented position of power, but not next time, because next time we'll talk more about another strong Scandinavian woman from the 14th century, Bridget, the aristocratic visionary who slandered King Magnus Eriksson. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.